There we go. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Pretty good, thanks. How are you guys doing? Yeah, all good, thank you. Thank you for giving us some of your time today. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad it's uh, working out finally here. Yeah. You know, basically, what we've been doing is um, we've started going through kind of different genres of films since the first, uh, since the start of the pandemic. Basically, we did comedies and we did action, and now we're on to adventure films. And myself and Jack personally, Back to the Future 2 is one of our favorite films. So we're talking about it on, uh, on next week's episode. And obviously, few better people to speak to than uh, someone that was in front of the camera. Nice. Yeah, that, that shoot was an adventure for me. Yeah. <laughs> well, when we were doing some reading to kind of go back to where it all started, I know um, you were doing acting before Back to the Future. And we read that you started out doing some kind of lookalike work. Is that accurate? Uh, no, I didn't start out doing lookalike work. I uh, started acting as a kid in, in school and uh, my parents didn't really want me to go into show business because they were around people in show business and saw what a hard life it was for them. Uh, my dad ran these private clubs where Omar Sharif and Lauren Green from Bonanza and Don Adams, all these uh, celebs would play cards and gamble and such. And they didn't want me doing what they saw a lot of actors very frustrated drinking and gambling and so on and so forth. And I, but I, I was really driven to it from a young age. And once I got out of high school, uh, they couldn't tell me so much what to do. Yeah. So I started getting on sets doing just little bit and background work in films like The Rose and FM and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Uh, and uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand, which was ironically Robert Zemeckis directing. But uh, th that kind of work was not so fulfilling. So I went after training to, so I could be taken more seriously uh, going to the American Conservatory Theater and University. And while doing um, my studying, I fell into an opportunity to screen test for a lead in a, an adventure film called The, uh, the Genius, mm -hmm. uh, which later became uh, War Games. And uh, Martin Brest, the original director on that, had told an agent about me. Mm -hmm. And she pursued me and uh, assigned me and, and uh, I headed back to Los Angeles and Hollywood. And the first co-star role I got uh, was really an adventure. I was working with George Miller at the helm uh, on that fourth episode, the remake of Nightmare at 20,000 Feet with John Lithgow on the airplane, you know, in the Twilight Zone movie. Yeah. And I worked uh, through the early 80s on various television shows and, and films like Johnny Dangerously and Crackers with Louis Maul. Uh, uh, then some TV, uh, the Scarecrow Mrs. King and Max Headroom in Dallas and such. And, and in about 87, uh, I fell into an opportunity to play uh, Stanley Laurel at Universal Tours in, in Hollywood. And that, that's when I started doing the lookalike work. And while I was doing that lookalike work in the uh, latter part of 88, uh, the agent that helped me get that job was supplying stand-in and photo doubles to films. And he called me up and asked if I knew who Crispin Glover was. Mm -hmm. And I said, sure, I did a film with him before he got the first Back to the Future film at the American Film Institute. And uh, 
inquiring further, uh, you know, I'm not the same height or weight as Crispin, but he thought I was close enough to get a meeting with me because as soon as I heard what he was fishing about, I, I thought it might be for the sequel to Back to the Future, mm -hmm. which, which I knew was in pre-production. Yeah. And when I saw the first film, because I knew Crispin, uh, I was really proud of him. I was, you know, I had his phone number and tried to stay in touch. And I thought he knocked it out of the park. I thought he was really great. Uh, so I s met with the assistant directors who then uh, told the director, Robert Zemeckis, about me and then sent me to casting where I had to audition and then started fitting for the prosthetic uh, makeup effects. Uh, and at that point, I still didn't know I, I, they, I, they led me to believe I was going to be a photo double or stand-in. Yeah. And I didn't know until really the 11th hour that Crispin wasn't coming back to do the, his role. No George. way. So how, how did they break the news to you? How, what was the kind of conversation? How did that go? It, it actually didn't really happen with <laughs> uh, production necessarily. It, it was the makeup artist, Kenny Chase, who, Ken Chase, who designed the makeup for the first films and then he designed for the second films they actually got fired like the first day of shooting he kind of mouthed off <laughs> to the director <laughs> you know, uh, yeah that's, uh, that's signing your own death warrant there a little bit <laughs> it was it was odd um but but what was going on was that ken was doing a test of the makeup uh, effects on me and he he said to me he said you know Kristen's out i was like what and uh, he said, Crispin is no longer in the picture. You, uh, you're going to be George. And I was like, well, how are they going to make that work? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've got these makeup effects. And I thought because of the young George makeup effects, they needed George in multiple locations at the same time, like mm -hmm. they did with, with Michael. But uh, they, then sure enough, uh, at the end of that week, I got a call from my agent who said, Universal Casting called and they are in fact offering you the role and I, I got a script and uh, read it and, and I was like, well, okay, um, if they don't have Crispin, it's going to be weird, but, uh, mm. Mm. and I called Crispin when I was up for the role saying, you know, say a good word for me, I need the work. <laughs> uh, of course, I didn't hear from him until he was ready to sue for the makeup they put me in. Uh, and I, I think because of my uh, photos and tales he settled his case out of court uh, which kind of backfired for me for getting more work at Universal or anyway so um, but it was an adventure it was a, a hell of a, of a ride you know being like the adopted kid in this mm -hmm. new cast uh, me and Elizabeth Shue um, who who was quite lovely she was really a lot of fun to, to uh, hang out with so kind of stepping into that role, I mean, you haven't been given a lot of time there to prepare at all. You've kind of been thrown in literally at the deep end. Kind what? of. There was there was some like, uh, I don't want to say triage, but, uh, you know, Zemeckis really didn't know me except from the short screen test for the makeup mm -hmm. uh, in which Dean Cundy said to Zemeckis, uh, I think we have Crispin without the trouble. And I was like, oh. <laughs> uh, but um a lot of the lines, for example, that were given in the script as if Crispin were, were delivering them were, mm -hmm. were divvied up between Michael and Leah in the scenes that I'm in. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of people, you know, uh, assumed that I was hung upside down to obscure that it wasn't Crispin. And that actually isn't the case. And, and I found the uh, actual reason recently 
that apparently on the first Brisbane was not able to always hit his marks for, for camera focus. Right. He'd overshoot or undershoot or whatever the case may be. So the two Bobs decided uh, in the sequel, they would have George hung upside down, made up the story of his back getting uh, wrenched uh, from, wrenched rather, <laughs> from uh, uh, the flying car that fell out of the sky while he's playing golf. And yeah. uh, so they put him in this ortholev, which meant that he had to be on a track that he could not veer from, which I endured, uh, hung upside down. And that way they'd have him hit his marks every time, you know, it was because he wasn't in control of it. Yeah. So obviously being upside down for a large portion there, and did you have to do any training for that? Or is it where you kind of like let Oh, no, down? there was no time for training. Uh, no. <laughs> See, like, if all the blood rushed yet, you were just, you're just out. <laughs> I, I think they waited till the last possible moment to see if Crispin would come to his senses and, and accept the 100,000 they were offering him or whatever. But he wanted to hold out for his million uh, and and apparently script approval. But uh, no, I, I didn't train for that except... Uh, you know, I just was so thrilled to have the work and yeah. be on such a great set with such a wonderfully talented family uh, that, you know, I endured it. And and they didn't, of course, like to get me down all the time in between takes and such. So they mm -hmm. built a, a ladder with a board on it and say, do a do a sit up. So I do a sit up and <laughs> I it under me and I'd lie back and kind of twirl my thumbs as everyone would go off and have coffee. And I'd be alone <laughs> on the set, you know, just lying there. I have photos and such. Would you like to see some of those behind the yeah, scenes? Yeah, sure. Or? Yeah, definitely. How long did it take for you to do uh, that, uh, film that scene? Uh, well, that scene, I think it was over the course of two weeks. <laughs> and the uh, hours were really long. The, um, <laughs> they didn't leave you there for the two weeks, at least. Yeah, let me pull up some of these <laughs> uh, some of these photos I have here, and uh, that yeah, the <laughs> one week I remember I had a nineteen hour day, I had a twenty one hour day, and a, even a twenty six hour long day in that same week, which uh, yeah, that's you know, a bit of a marathon. Yeah, it was a, it was like a marathon, and and the. time you know the turnaround time was often less than eight hours mm -hmm. uh before i'd have to be back in the makeup chair the makeup alone took about four hours to put on so if they wanted wanted me on on set say by nine in the morning i'd have to be in the makeup chair by 4 30 a.m jeez uh and you know they'd give me a half hour break after a couple hours of putting on makeup Blue. That was nice of them. <laughs> yeah, and I could stretch yeah. a little bit and then I go back in to be painted, finished up. And uh, the, oh, if you could allow me to share screen, I could do this. So, uh, you know, I'd be, you know, ready to go at 9 a.m. if we're shooting during the day. And, and then it's telling me I'm a host disabled attendee screen sharing. So the host. Well, I pressed something beforehand that it should have allowed it. I mean, let me have a quick look. 
See if it's something I can do. This is the perils of modern times. <laughs> this, this this happens at least four or five times a day at work. <laughs> yeah, I uh, have learned. It's been quite a, a learning curve. I started doing Zoom shows uh, with, right away uh, when the pandemic hit a year ago. Uh, mm. I, fans did a remake of part two called really? Project 88 where uh, a, a director producer named Taylor Morton out of Oregon cut up the film in 88 scenes and then divvied them out to people who wanted to remake those scenes during lockdown. And so they had one week supposedly to do it with whatever resources they had in their homes. So I did a scene in that. And then uh, another group did a project 85 where they remade part one. So the, both of those you can find on YouTube. And then mm -hmm. I started working with uh, a group out of London called The Show Must Go Online. And, and they uh, were kind of ready to go with Zoom technology and, and did all of Shakespeare's canon over the course of the summer and plus. And then they also, the first one that I did with them uh, was uh, as if Shakespeare had written Back to the Future. And I played Doc Brown in it. And you can that's find amazing. that on YouTube. So that's I've seen that on uh, Audible. Um, I've, I've I've not listened. I wasn't too sure, kind of, uh, what it was, but I think there's an audio recording of it um, online yeah, as I think, well. I think Ian Drescher, the the writer of that, has an audio, audio yeah. version. Um, the and the highlight version that we did for the show must go online is on YouTube, and it's called "Get Thee Back to the Future." And it, uh, it should let you share screen now. I think I've I think yeah, I've mastered it. Yeah, baby, we're in business. <laughs> Nice. The first time I've done that. So let's see. If, uh, can you see this here? Yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah. That's that ladder I was telling you about. Crikey. And uh, Don, Dan from ILM, here is my, my special effects handler. You can see Zemeckis in the background there. That's amazing. So you're on this for almost an entire day, just kind of hanging around. <laughs> yep, yeah, pretty much. Um, uh, you, it was, uh, you know, it was grueling and hard, but at the same time, it was also incredibly exciting for me. And, and so I, I didn't complain much. I, I did get, um, I think Bob Gale once paid for me to go get massaged. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bob. So you can see. At least see it's uh, like a memorable my... scene. Like if, if you'd done all that work and then nobody even remembered that being in the film. I imagine it would be a lot lot more brutal looking back. Yeah, well, we shot a lot more than what made the final cut. You know, because it wasn't Crispin, I think they really pulled back on, on what I did. I, I came up with a few lines, like outside the front door, how's granddad's little pumpkin? Because Michael, as Marlene, her her uh, hot pants were stuffed and, you know, had a, a little orange color there and made her butt look like a pumpkin. So I came up with that line. Um, but as you can see, here's the, the Back to the Future uh, behind the scenes part two, where you can actually see that we're in the soundstage, mm -hmm. the, the Fruit Please device, and my hang in. Um, my, my Leo, probably, Leo will hate me for showing her in a robe, but uh, <laughs> let's see if uh, I get some other shots up here that, that are interesting. If, if you want, I also have, have footage of the makeup, of me in the makeup chair. And yeah, also yeah. Definitely. So we're kind of going through, obviously, that scene there. What was probably the most memorable moment for you whilst on set, do you think? 
if you could kind of pinpoint one. Most memorable moments or being on set? Well, yeah, like what's your mem most memorable? When you look back on your time with Back to the Future, what, do you, is there any moments that you think of and you think, wow? Well, there, there are so many. Um, uh, I liked, you know, uh, hanging out with the other stars when I wasn't shooting. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Elizabeth and I uh, hung out in my dressing room for a bit. I hung out with Billy Zane in his dressing room for a while and listened to music and sang and told stories. I uh, hung out with Michael. Uh, talked him into buying his farm. <laughs> he, he really? uh, yeah, he he said, "Hey, tell me what you think of this," and and put on this tape that a realtor had uh, taken of the the farm with the long-haired sheep and the old barn built in the 1700s or whatever. Anyway, I I asked him. I said, "You know, have you seen it in person?" He said, "Yeah." And I, what do you think of it? He goes, "It's okay." And, uh, what he really liked was that the people up there, when he went to the cor corner store, the, the city, the town's main mercantile, that they didn't treat him any differently than anyone else, that he wasn't a star necessarily. And that was refreshing. He liked that. I said, yeah. well, then you should get it. And I believe he did. Uh, I guess so that's like super important for kind of mindset, I guess, because you can kind of get caught up in it all, can't you? It's nice to have that kind of reset of oh, this is yeah. what life is like. I'm not seeing. Do you see Laurel and Hardy on this one? Not, it's just loading up. It says. Yeah, it's just on my screen. Oh, okay, that's that's probably not going to work. But I was going to show you the the lookalike work I fell into playing Stan Laurel mm -hmm. at Universal, and then I played Charlie Chaplin and Groucho Marx. So if you went to Universal Studios between 1987 and 2001. Uh, and had your photo with any of Laurel and Hardy or what have you, it might be me. <laughs> I guess uh, a link a lot of people would make is going from that and kind of stepping into the role as uh, George. And I didn't know if it made a, a big difference to you in kind of the ease of settling into the role, because even just watching the first one back, it's been played in a way where it's kind of uh, just his overall being is so like exaggerated like the way he walks and the way he talks and even just the expressions oh, yeah. so i guess when you're going into the second time you at least have the foundation of things that you can pinpoint oh yeah so when when it was obvious that they needed me to do a spot-on imitation uh bob gale uh arranged for me to get all of crispin and bob gave me uh copies of the screen test makeup tests with Leah and Crispin and, and Tom and Crispin and Crispin Solo so could get an, his essence. They, they knew that I had to nail his physicality and voice and such. Uh, and so for me, it was both educational and entertaining. It was really great to see at one point, uh, Tom and Crispin are doing their old age from part one and standing in a doorway, looking at each other, whatever, wherever out, outside the production. And uh, Tom says, what, McFly, what is that? Some sort of Irish bug? <laughs> and, uh, you know, that wasn't obviously in the script, but it was adapted for the script because it was so funny. You know, mm -hmm. they, they uh, came up with a lot of stuff watching Crispin and Leah develop their characters with, I think it was Neil Canton, one of the producer's nephew as Marty. Uh, pretty fascinating to see them develop the specific idiosyncrasies of the characters. It was fun. And 
through that, you know, I was able to get, you know, where he had sort of this center of gravity in his head, which caused him to lean forward, you know, hey, you know, uh, and, and hey, you, you know, he has a, this odd placement of his voice. Uh, he has this uh, gravity base, which is pretty strong, but leaning forward, you know, and finding that Crispin element was handy for me, not only in recreating, of course, the Enchantment Under the Sea dance and uh, the fight with Biff out in the parking lot, but also if you look at the bonus material, uh, the pizza scene where George actually, I got to rotate my axis for, for pizza for dinner. And in that I, I do a golf swing and go four. <laughs> so I get to do, you know, tribute to Crispin's laugh and all that. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, it, even though it got laugh on set and uh, other things I did got laughs like eating the banana upside down from fruit, please, because the peel kept slapping me in the face. It was very funny. <laughs> it all got cut. Um, uh, but so is so goes show business. You know, they obviously didn't want to bring too much attention to me because they knew that they were in a gray area with the makeup <laughs> and that he might sue. And like, sure enough, he did. <laughs> It's, it's, weird. it's weird for you because um, obviously you do such a good job, but there's people out there that genuinely don't realise that it's a different actor from the first one to the second one. So it's kind of they're, a double-edged sword for you. That yes, there. I mean, you, you want your name there, but also you do you do want to do it justice. There are a lot of people out there who uh, still don't know, which is pretty shocking. You know, thirty years after the fact. <laughs> yeah. um so uh here's uh I'll, I'll share a couple more photos here if i can find my share screen but here we go so you see that's that uh yeah and hide the sidebar there we go took about you know four hours a day to put this on and it really doesn't look face on that much like Crispin, even though it's probably set made from his life mask. But from the side, this is a spot on. Yeah, absolutely yeah. dead on the money. This is a Polaroid uh, continuity photo. Yeah. Did it take so the same see... amount of time for the 17 year old, the 47 and 77 for the prosthetics? Yeah, the same time as the old age makeup, about four hours. Yeah. Mm. Sorry, Jack. I was just, I was just going to say. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good old Elizabeth. She really is a fun girl. I like her. Yeah. I was going to say that. Do you take it as a compliment that you played the part so well that people don't realise it's another well, another actor, or do you kind of? wish that it had been marketed a bit more or yeah i i had high hopes i had uh, done fairly well uh, co-starring with clint eastwood and pale, pale rider and guest starring mm -hmm. on various tv shows and i uh, was looking to really step up in my career and i saw this as a really great opportunity to promote it but then yeah. every every chance i had to promote it i uh, found that I was thwarted by Universal. 
I yes. couldn't get my footage. I couldn't get my photos. It was a uh, kind of a nightmare. And uh, and then uh, obviously seeing that Crispin was uh, dealt a bad hand with reusage of footage that he didn't approve of or agree to, and then using his likeness on me, it, it just wasn't fair. And when mm -hmm. I, it turned out, became public that I had spoken with him, uh, it blew up in my face. So it, it, it kind of was bad until really the fans discovered me. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I've continued acting. Uh, the Hollywood scene just got too much for me with, with the traffic and uh, agents that were not doing much for me. Uh, so I um, got out of, of Hollywood and continued working mostly in the independent world and then go back to LA when uh, projects that want me there to shoot uh, I still have my my uh, apartment down in Santa Monica. So, um, and in a way, I was getting really great roles uh, in the independent film world outside of Hollywood, uh, yeah. uh, and and then also working on stage as well. I I uh, I played the Igor character in Marty Feldman's you know Marty Feldman's role in in the Young Frankenstein the musical. Yeah. Uh, I, I grew, grew my pandemic fur once before <laughs> to play the Robin Williams role on a stage live version of The Fisher King, which was really rewarding, great, great production. Uh, so I've, I've kept working. Uh, I got to play Mark Twain in a, a sh movie do dramatization of his trip to the Holy Land in Europe in 1867, which was the basis for his first book, The Innocence Abroad. <laughs> And that was great for me because I, I also do living history. I've, since I was young, back in 73, I started doing Renaissance fairs and, and Victorian Charles Dickens fairs and such. And I love that sort of thing and uh, educating while entertaining. I did a, a thing called time travel weekends where I played an old medicine man, snake oil salesman, yeah. and then switched over to playing Mark Twain. Uh, and now I'm actually writing uh, eight episodes of a series called Mark Twain's American History. And oh, that, that's the reason I'm growing this pandemic for so long. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to play uh, the, the old miner that tells Twain's character uh, the, the jumping frogs of Calaveras County tale. And uh, so, uh, so I'm going to be this old crotchety miner telling <laughs> yeah. the story. And then I'll shave it and turn around and be Mark Twain listening to it going, get me out of here, you know. <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's great that you've really uh, kind of embraced the fan side of Back to the Future as well, because it has lived on. I mean, my, myself and Jack, I, I don't mean to say it this way, but we weren't born when uh, the first Back to the Future films came out, but we're both such big fans of it. And we went to see the I'm reruns of the... <laughs> we went to see the reruns of the trilogy in 2015 when uh, they did an anniversary show over here. And I've seen, and you've mentioned that you've been in these fan projects and things. So it is really cool to see that you've really embraced that side of it. I I love being discovered by the fans. I uh, had uh, really been pretty much in ob obscurity, um, but in about I guess nine, uh, yeah, about the early nineties, ninety three or four, uh, I had one Uber fan track me down up at Universal uh, and interview me there, which is online. And, and I've you know, grown a lot since then on my understanding of the whole situation that I had gone through. Mm 
Uh, and so, and you know, old exploitive media likes to take sound bites and, and stir up trouble with that old interviewer. Uh, anyway, uh, but it was the DeLorean owners associated found me. Uh, a gentleman, gentleman named uh, Daniel Deutsch brought me to my first DeLorean meeting and I, or convention, and I've done a handful of those uh, as a celebrity guest and sometimes as their MC or auctioneer or what have you. Mm -hmm. I've even performed as Charlie Chaplin at one of my first ones there. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, in, since about 2009, I guess, uh, I started doing the, the fan cons. And and you mentioned um, you know the the anniversary year that special anniversary year of yeah. of 2015. Uh, uh, Jason, the owner of London Film and Comic Con, brought me over for for this wonderful uh, reunion where we had what was it 13 of us, two, four, six, eight, ten, eleven of us of the cast members from the trilogy came over for uh, that wonderful reunion. Brilliant. Yes, great. Yeah, was, uh, and then the the cosplayers. You can't knock me out. This is this is the German Biff, nice. and and the German Marty, uh, a, a girl, a lovely gal I know, Catherine. Um, Catherine, yes. Uh, as you can see, you know, backstage, uh, Jason had us all sign this guitar, which we auctioned off for a lot of money for Michael's charity. And that, that was the first show that Michael did for the fans. He, he did uh, arrive unannounced at a Hollywood show um, six, seven years earlier, but this is the first one that he came to as a, as you know, build, as uh, yeah. attending. So that was really cool Good. to have a, a room full of several thousands hanging on our every word and, and you know, yeah. getting, getting that cred uh, was very important for me. It was it was nice to be able to share that with with the the cast members. I still wish that that Crispin would do it. You know, mm -hmm. I uh, most of the cast really love Crispin, and I liked him too. I was a friend. I thought, <laughs> but he, once he got his settlement, I've never heard from him again. He's never mentioned my name. But it, and it's kind of sad because I think the fans would just adore that that he would you know let go of the bitterness and and bob gale would let gut let go of his bitterness and and do something for the uh michael's cherry i think that yeah. would be really outstanding but uh was, you know i think both sides are still butting heads yeah Life's it was cool short. for us to see it in the cinema just because we hadn't had that experience before and it was packed out when we saw it there and they literally just played one two and three back to back to back and people were still like going all in i wondered with the second film if there was anything in particular that was kind of created to be for the future that people on set thought was crazy then that perhaps now when we passed that even i mean we've had the lace-up shoes and things like that i know we don't quite have the four second pizza or whatever it was yet but anything that was deemed to be mental then that perhaps isn't so mental now I'm not sure what the question is, Luke. Uh, no, I wondered if there was anything uh, that was deemed to be futuristic at the time of filming that perhaps wouldn't seem so crazy now, kind of looking back. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, quite a few things. Yeah. You know, we, uh, I, 
as soon as I saw the set for the McFly home of 2015 and saw the uh, effect that they were, they were going to do with the television with the multiple screens, I was like, oh yeah, I could see that coming. I could see yeah. that being real. Uh, the fax machine on the wall, I think we had fax machines already, so that wasn't so so much uh, a revelation, but the uh, projected image out the window mm -hmm. where there was really just a brick wall. We had a terrible time actually with that effect. That was one of those days that went over 20 hours uh, really? because because the effect when when Leah, when Lorraine pulls the, the, the window cover up, the shade up, you could see the flicker of the you know, the strobe of the uh, projector, yeah. Yeah. the effect. And so we, I think Zemeckis sent us to our third dinner or something. And, and while uh, we were at the dinner, he had figured it out and said, Leah, you know, just pull it forward, do your line to camera, which will cheat and we'll get the projector off and then let go. And sure enough, we got it and we're able to go home after yeah. 26 hours, whatever it was. Um, the uh, the hydrator, the ortholev, the watches we wore, the uh, controls I had, the various things that that set was art directed within an inch of its life. It was amazing the the attention to detail. I have uh, I I could dig them up and and send them to you. I have a lot of the uh, details of a lot of those props and and uh, the set. Um, and it was it was really fun to see, you know, the finished product, yeah. holographic uh, shark and and the flying cars. I went and visited the set of Hill Valley 2015 too, and uh, I remember bringing my nine-year-old nephew from Oklahoma, and who got to meet Michael J. Fox and nearly crapped his pants. You know, it was <laughs> it was so fun to see Darlene in the spike makeup because she already has a green eye and a blue eye and then they put red contacts over her eyes and, and she was beautiful to look at I was just stunned by you know the future of wardrobe and then the knowing what they were doing with the hoverboards watching a bit of that it was it was really uh exciting and and it was I think refreshing that because a lot of sequels at least at the, that time were kind of rehashes or didn't really do it cover a lot of new ground or were done with a lot of care whereas this time they you had such a great writing team of the two bobs and and so much money invested that they really didn't have to rush and and uh, when they went into production they of course were often under the the uh, gun because it's what fifty thousand dollars a minute or whatever <laughs> cut off some <laughs> at that time they were spending. but they had a lot of years to think about it to prepare and a just a crack team of art artistic craftspeople all through the, the entire crew it was it was just really <laughs> lovely to be a part of that and i was i was very proud of of uh, being on that set once again though I was at the same time disappointed that that was it. Well, so it goes. Uh, so I have that that footage if you'd like to see of uh, getting yeah, into sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, once again, give me a sec to uh, set this up here. Uh, I think I could do this like that and play it like this. So the first bit is silent here in the makeup trailer. Uh, 
like I said, it was four hours. Uh, Sonny Berman of the Berman Brothers, who just passed away two years ago, is uh, working on me with Nancy Vasta, mm -hmm. lovely people. Uh, his his brothers produced lots of the Star Trek series, did all those makeups. In the background, there is Mike Mills, who was foreman on Beetlejuice with uh, uh, Kenny Myers or Marvin Westmore. Which one is that? I think that's Marvin Westmore, the famous family working on Leah. And the crack team of makeup artists working on us was like the who's who of the makeup world. A gentleman named Zoltan and his wife who got the Academy Award for Mass came in and worked on us. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, just lovely long, long hours that we spent. Yeah. Um, it was refreshing because they, they would were like our outlets for talking uh, about the excitement of being there. And they were just as, as excited as we were. I imagine it's kind of like when you go to a barber and you're in the chair for a really long time and you've got to try and find new things to talk about constantly. Whereas if you're in the chair for like four hours, then yeah. I guess sometimes- You're letting me have a little quick stretch and break here, <laughs> maybe have a bite before finishing up with the wig and the painting. That's crazy how you go from that to that. Yeah, well, the, the first footage was the old age, and this is, of course, yeah. And the first stuff we shot was the enchantment under the sea. Yeah, it was awkward uh, uh, for the first day or two that uh, Zemeckis and others were would refer to me as Crispin. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Quite literally stepping into his shoes. Yeah, it was uh, it was uh, weird, weird. Um, but eventually, you know, they they saw how hard I was working and started calling me by my real name or or hey you. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So, uh, yeah. kind of like memorability-wise then, so obviously we've spoken to quite extent about the scene where you hung upside down. What was your favorite scene to shoot that you most enjoyed? Uh, I really like shooting uh, the fight <laughs> in the parking lot. I mean, Tom, was, Tom was really fun to work with. He's, he's uh, uh, a very funny man, as you probably know. Mm -hmm. um, let me see if I, and, and he, uh, you know, worked with me uh, it, very seriously. We, when you work on, on stage combat, uh, it's like a choreographing a dance mm -hmm. you know, it's, and it's very dangerous and you, you don't want to take any chances. So we uh, worked well in, into the night all night long and you know had to recreate of course everything very precisely yeah. 
while working with the new camera blocking and, and business that's going on around us. Hmm. And, uh, you know, he was consummate pro and, and I, I really enjoyed hitting the marks that needed to be done, both with uh, physical and the fight choreography and also the vocal. I actually got to do, hey, you get your damn hands off her, you know, that, that stuff. Yeah. Um, and then uh, when you're working really hard and you have the support of all the background in, in costume and, and makeup and character and, and such a hardworking crew, uh, it's, you get sort of outside of yourself and it becomes bigger than you and, mm -hmm. and a real uh, labor of love. And, and, uh, and I love that. I, that's one of the things about movie making I just adore is the teamwork that is involved and then the magic if the story has that capability of, of transporting and, and being magical of seeing that happen. I've had it on several of these independent projects where uh, a director might not see that the God smiled and, and a happy accident has happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I have to point out to them that, uh, you know, that take in particular, or this is this business that has happened is actually supporting the story and you may not have realized that because it's not in the script and I'll, I'll actually use my notoriety or celebrity to to stop the action and take the director aside and say you know when she kissed when when i kissed her no when she kissed my character and came away with my makeup on her face to go get married you know that was really wonderful because it's symbolic of this love that's being transferred that she transfers to her new husband that was on one project uh, another one where this after I threw up in this one scene in this other indie and a little puppy dog out of nowhere comes and starts eating up the vomit it was disgusting but incredibly funny and I begged the director to consider to use that take which he did and it gives a wonderful laugh you know these different magic moments when a director is open to it and Zemeckis was open to various things like the, the banana, eating the banana upside down and slapping on the face, but it ultimately didn't stay in. Uh, House Granddad's little pumpkin, you know, just a few things like that uh, is, is part of the magic and that I love uh, that collaboration on set. Yeah, that's, that's, that's brilliant. I mean, thank you for giving us so much of your time today. We really appreciate it. And it's been great sure. to speak to you. Yeah, I, uh, you know, think of since you're doing adventure films, I was trying to think what other adventures, uh, the, the exciting uh, first co-star role I ever had was on, like I mentioned, George Miller's episode of the remake of Nightmare 20,000 Feet uh, mm -hmm. in Twilight Zone movie. And that was one, another case where the director said, if, if in rehearsal you feel like you want to do something uh, come up with a line or a bit of business let's let's do it and I came up with you know maybe six lines that way of three of them got cut but nonetheless uh, it was so thrilling to be on that adventure and it uh, I think hands down is the more more uh, exciting the most exciting episode of that the four stories in that film mm -hmm. uh, on on Pale Rider I got the adventure of going into the old west and playing cowboy with with Clint and yeah. you know those those are uh memories I cherish. I have a lot of stories from all those films. So if 
you get to them, have me back on. I got more photos and stories yeah. to share. Absolutely. Definitely. But again, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate your time. Sure. Hopefully thank I'll you. get get over there. I've uh, uh, had uh, inquiries from like uh, Edinburgh and Liverpool and uh, various other comic cons. Hopefully yeah. London Comic Con will bring me back. And when I do, you know, uh, I'll try to get a hold of you and let you know so you can announce on your show. Yeah, Let's absolutely. Well, right, thank Jack. you. And uh, sure, Luke. Yeah. Hope you pleasure. enjoy the rest of your day. Hey, hey don't tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, be well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Bye.